You're tuning in to the Wild, Weird, and Sometimes Normal podcast. If you have a story or a guest recommendation that you think others need to hear, email me at wildweirdandsometimesnormal at gmail.com. Let's get this started. Alex and Brett, kick it! Wild. And sometimes normal. On this episode, I'm joined by Taylor Warner, who runs the True Crime and Coffee blog. Taylor is an independent journalist who has researched numerous true crime cases. This is my first true crime episode, and honestly, I'm not sure what I was expecting. I've definitely watched or listened to true crime content, True TV, Unsolved Mysteries, Making a Murderer, The Serial Podcast. I'm not sure if experiencing the content in a one-on-one conversation made it more real, or that the victims in the cases were close to my children's age, so I viewed it through a different lens, but boy, was this a tough one. Taylor was well-prepared and laid out the details to the case, suspects, outcomes, and everything in between. I feel like both times I had her wrap the crime scene and victim status a little early because I got the picture and was ready to move on. We discussed two heartbreaking cases, the Girl Scout murders and the West Memphis Three. Both remain unsolved to this day. We also sprinkle in some of the Natalie Holloway story because at the time of the recording, Jordan Vandersloot had just pled guilty to extorting Natalie's parents and admitted that he killed her. And we also mentioned the Casey Anthony case. Taylor was an awesome guest, and I truly enjoyed our conversation and hope to have her back on to discuss different cults. Follow her work and let her know you heard her on Wild and Weird. Enjoy the show. Are you looking for CBD for your pet? My friends at Pure Pet Wellness have what you need. They use the highest quality ingredients. While other companies may use synthetic oils in their CBD, Pure Pet Wellness uses organic ingredients, organically grown hemp, organic coconut oil, organic shea butter, organic beeswax, and that's just to name a few. A family-owned and operated company that also offers fast shipping. Go to purepetwellness.com for all your pet's CBD needs and use the discount code WILD and WEIRD at checkout. That's WILD. A-N-D, weird. Treat your animal right. Go to purepetwellness.com. Are you looking to buy a home in New Jersey? Escape the city and move to the suburbs? Finally purchase a vacation home on the lake or down the shore? Maybe you're one of the lucky ones who are retiring and moving out of state. If so, let me help you. Keller Williams and the Real Estate Professional Group have what you need to make your goals come true. Reach out and have a conversation with someone who will put you first. Contact Brian McCoach at 856-321-1212 or email McCoach at kw.com. Welcome to another episode of Wild, Weird, and Sometimes Normal. I'm your host, Brian. And tonight, my guest is Taylor Warner. She is the creator of the True Crime and Coffee page. Welcome, Taylor. Hi, thank you for having me. How are you? I'm doing great. We had some technical difficulty. We fought through it. Very rarely am I the least technical person on the podcast, so I feel like really good right now. That was like a good like ego bump. 
despite being in that younger generation, I have somehow failed to follow suit with the rest of the people in my around my age group. And I am totally clueless with this stuff. So thank you for being patient. <laughs> I, we're, we're here. We got through it and it's working out. Yeah. So right now you're live on location from Panera Bread. We're doing a live podcast for them. Their families are going to be super excited about this topic. Because Their kids are going to have wonderful dreams tonight. <laughs> amazing dreams because your passion is true crime. So yeah. I'm scrolling through Facebook and, you know, this podcast, I'm trying to figure out, hey, who can I get as a guest? And I come across your page and there are just details, detailed stories and horrible murders and all these awesome things that are like the best huge. Of all of it. Yeah, the best of all of it. So you have some cases you put together, you were sending me pictures of notes and like you are the most prepared guest I've ever had. So let's get into what are, well, one, what is your passion for true crime? I'm not going to ask about coffee. I think everybody knows coffee. What is your passion for true crime? Yes, coffee, as you see. I, that was the first thing I did when I got here. That's a really good question. I would say I am most interested in the psychological aspect of everything. I, When I first started my blog, the case of Natalie Holloway's disappearance actually is what first started my interest in everything. And through looking into that case and it still being unsolved, that kind of led me down a path of looking into further unsolved cases. But Somehow over the years of doing it, it kind of transitioned from being interested in the cases themselves and kind of transitioned into now I'm more interested in the profile of the people who are committing the cases. So I would say like my dream goal is to wind up as being like a, a forensic psychologist or a criminologist of some sort. So definitely the psychological aspect of everything is what I'm most interested in. So I give, if you ask me about like 1970s serial killers i could tell you just about every detail you could know about them so turn this into like a guess who game like is, is he wearing glasses does he dress up as a clown and then, you know we can all yeah good one <laughs> we all know that answer already yeah, we know yeah. so natalie holloway that that case was fascinating and last week jordan vandersloot was in court and uh, yes. he was trying to extort the parents i think for two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and finally like this is like the ninth truth. So I don't know like how true it is, but they said he did right. pass a lie detector test. So I think the conclusion is what everybody expected. Uh, I don't know how our parents feel and you know, it has to be horrible to lose an 18 year old daughter or whatever, but for some of the horrible stories that were out there, like what could have happened to her, her being trafficked and things like that. I think right. that like that he murdered her pretty quickly. Right. And I was going to say, I think a lot of the times social media and just the media in general has a way of creating this like giant fantasy out of these cases where I think a lot of the times it really is a simple answer to a degree. In the case of Natalie, the, they were the last people to see her. They, after that, no one saw her after they, she left the club with them. I mean, to me, that seems like a clear cut answer. And not only that, like he had murdered another woman in Aruba after Natalie. I don't know if you knew about that. The other foreign exchange student in a hotel room. So, I mean, he had a history with being violent with women, you know? So, and that's the thing is if you look into criminology, like I'm interested in, I think the biggest thing is looking into the pre-offensive and the post-offensive behavior. And it was with someone like a personality, like Jorn Vandersloot, he's going to continue doing those things because in my opinion, it was the control. He clearly had a personality that seemed like he was getting off on being, you know, this macho man that could pull in any girl he wanted off of, you know, the island and then things like that. He's never been convicted for, I mean, now he might get convicted for Natalie Holloway. He was in jail for the other murder, right? 
Right. So I got sure if he went to jail. Whenever I was looking into Natalie's case, I remember learning that his dad was pretty high up in the Aruban government. I'm not sure if he was law enforcement or what, but that sounds like one of the major reasons he got away with everything that he did. And, you know, I, I work in a profession where I work for some very powerful people and I see those personality types every day. You know, when you have power and you're raised to think that you have no consequences, I think that breeds a specific type of personality that thinks that they can do anything that they want and there will be no repercussions. And so far, I mean, he lived a normal life for how many years, you know? So in his case, it really did in a way ring true for him that because of that power, he was able to get away with some really horrendous things. Yeah, yeah. I like some of the comments that the mom made to him. She like walked into, into the courtroom and then saw him and then she's like, oh, you look terrible. You know, just like these small little digs that somebody who is that full of themselves, he probably thinks he's, you know, still like a very handsome person and in, in power. And for him, like just those little subtle digs, I feel like something that would like eat away at him, like that would eat away at him more than him admitting that he murdered. You know, oh, these yeah. Women. Yeah, because if you have a psychopathic personality, the remorse is totally lacking. I think the remorse they feel is for themselves, especially in his case. So, and for me, I think, yeah, you know, she's able to say those little things and to a degree, she does have control over him. But can you imagine being in the same room with someone that took your child away, you know, and then that being the only thing that you can do to them, you know, as a mother, I just, and I think that's one of the reasons that Natalie's case stuck out with me. It's just, I can't imagine that being like your last high school trip and you're so excited and it's such an innocent and exciting time. And then for her to be taken, it, it was just a really crazy, crazy experience. Hopefully he gets what he deserves. But I was saying he's going to get out of jail in 20 something years. He's going to be less than 60. He's in his 50s, I guess. Like he's only like a 30 year old guy or something like mid 30s. Yeah, and I would be willing to bet that if he does get out and he's that young, he will probably be committing some other crimes again. So yeah, maybe yeah. the uh, the jail justice system will will get him. Not that I'm advertising for anything, but you know, maybe some. I, yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, I don't know. Would he be going to jail in Aruba, or was he being extradited to the United States? I wasn't sure. I feel like he was arrested in Peru or somewhere for. Mm, okay, the, I didn't. I haven't the been second murder. It. Gotcha. Yeah, I feel like he was in a, you know, not the United States jail is great, but he was like in an official third world country jail. Uh, and then he was brought that, to the United States, I think, for this trial. And then he was, yeah, and then put it back, you know, Brazil or South America or somewhere. Not that they're all third world okay. countries, just, you know, I don't think he won't be in jail there. But I hey, that's say, him. If I ever I'm glad he's there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I prepared a couple of cases with the West Memphis Three and the Oklahoma Girl Scout murder case. And I can go on forever on the West Memphis Three case. There's so much information. So, yeah. Right, let's start with the Girl Scout one. So then we can go. Sure. I don't want to cut one short. What is it? You know, it's a weird, like, hey, those are your favorite. That's good. Like, what are, what is it about that case that speaks to you? For me, when I'm compiling these cases and I begin writing the articles, I have a very visual, when I'm writing, I really see things happening. So I think for me, with the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders, it was a day where all these little girls, hundreds of little girls were at camp. It was actually the 49th anniversary of the camp that day, whenever they all showed up. And I think it's this idea of being a little girl and just again you know all you're thinking about is you get to meet all your new friends and you're so excited about what's to come and you know and in this case in particular a lot of the campers and the counselors heard things going on in the night throughout the night and 
when you look back and you look at the timeline, you realize that they were more than likely hearing those little girls being murdered. And if someone would have maybe done something a little more, maybe one of them would have been saved. So I think a lot of it is to do with this case in particular, which is very, very brutal. The the profile of the killer was someone who I don't come across very often where they can continually commit crimes like that and kind of leave the crime scene afterwards. So case in particular, he spent quite a while with the victims before leaving and that's taking a chance of being caught. And that says something that, in my opinion, that that's someone that has waited for that opportunity. And when that opportunity arises, they're going to do what they, what they came to do, you know, and yeah, I want to pause you real quick, just because yeah. I'm not familiar with the case. So can you just give yeah. us I was going to say, level. once yep. I start talking, I'll keep going. Yep. So yeah, stop. <laughs> <laughs> let's rewind back real quick. What yeah. happened? These girls are at camp. It sounds like it's an overnight camp. They're there for like a week or something or. So I'm not sure exactly how I'm assuming they're about a week long. So the June of 1977, Denise Milner, Lori Farmer, and Michelle Gusset were three eight-year-old Girl Scouts that went to Camp Scott in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And that the same night that they arrived, all three girls were actually murdered inside of their tent. So the night that they arrived, they were actually attacked. So that was like another really big red flag for me that in my opinion, someone seemed to have been like watching and maybe were aware that they arrived that day. So that's a setting as far as the day, like when it happened, everything like mm-hmm. that. So, so this, you said in their tent, so this is individual tent camping. Yes. So if I can describe the setting, um, it was like a horse stew state. So there was at the end of the horse stew, at the end of each horse stew, there were camp tents with three, three to four girls in each. So those girls were actually in the farthest tent away from the counselor's tent. And this actually, they had bathrooms and stalls uh, like obstructing the view from the counselor's tent to their tent as well. So it seems that the person who came in and attacked them was very aware of the placement, knowing that sounds were going to be muffled, everything like that. So, and they were also that tent. It was in Camp Iowa or Kiawa. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. They were actually butted up right at the back of the property. And at the back of the, of the property, there was the gate that was supposed to be locked, but apparently the counselors didn't check it that night. So again, that kind of leads me to think that it's someone that for one knew they arrived was familiar with the area because they did attack the girls at night and it was a heavily forested area. So it's in the Ozark Mountains. So really densely forested areas that they were having to navigate at night. So that to me seems like someone that's very familiar with the area. And then I don't know if you have any other questions after that, as far as like setting. Let's get into it. This sounds terrible. I have a seven-year-old daughter and this is just like the worst thing. We're already starting down a path of like, you know, yeah. And I was going to say maybe like a little forewarning that it, it's it's bad. I'm not going to get into anything super graphic, but okay. it's. Oh, and that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's why it's just, you know, I'll let you go through, but it's, it's just like the seventies and eighties. I grew up in the eighties. Yeah. It was the wild West, man. It, it was crazy. Like for yeah. my kids go to day camp in the summer and they go to this, like, you know, we live kind of near the Pine Barrens in New Jersey. So they have this camp, like, you know, in the Pine Barrens, but it's completely safe right. and all this stuff. They play outdoors and do all this stuff. But like, we, like, you have to have a student to counselor ratio, like, you know, and like, they watch them, there's stuff going on. And, you know, I, don't, I know right. they didn't have like cameras back then as much, like now everything's under right. surveillance, but it just seems kind of crazy that like, oh, we're going to have eight-year-olds sleep in a tent, like without a guardian nearby. And the parents are like, yeah, that sounds great. Go ahead and do it. 
But my dad was the same way. I mean, I was born in the nineties and he still was like, Oh, you're fine. You'll make it out. But there were multiple times in my childhood where I think I was close to being kidnapped. So, I mean, I think, I think more so than anything, it's just an awareness and parents as a whole that kids are not as safe as we'd like to think they are, you know? And I don't think that's necessarily gotten any better or worse. And actually like homicide and crime rates are actually at the lowest, like compared to what they were in the early 1900s, you know? So I think more than anything, media has a huge role in how aware we are of these cases. And also if media is only covering, you know, the top one to 5% of the violent crime, of course, we're going to have this notion that everything is so dangerous, but I don't think that's necessarily true. You know, I, in doing all of this research and the cases and running my blog, I, for a while, I actually had to stop because I really started to have a lot of nightmares and I became paranoid about things happening to me, you know, because I do these cases where I'm creating these victim profiles and I'm like, wow, I matched that. I, I would be a good victim for that person, you know, and it's scary because you come to realize that any of us would be good victims. And I think more than anything, it's learning and being able to distinguish who the predators are among us. And unfortunately, those seem to be the ones that are the best. You know, they're, they blend in with society the best. And they're the most cunning and the most charismatic and the quickest to disarm somebody, you know? So how do you see those monsters when they aren't in wolf clothing? You know what I mean? No, that so. definitely makes it, makes it hard. And there's times where like, I'm going to go out, you know, I might go out at night and run an errand or something. My wife's like, Oh, well be careful out there. I was, I'm right. Like, I'm like, I don't think a six foot three, 40 ish dad, like, I don't think I fit anybody's profile. And once they You're get in the van, blessed. And I start talking nonstop. And if they want to get into, you know, hey, I know, I'm going to know so much more about true crime and Bigfoot and UFOs and, right? and, and health and wealth. They're going to pull over in a, a minute and just like, please just get out. Just please leave. And as I'm getting out, I'm like, hey, well, do you want to schedule a podcast real quick? So we can just talk about like why you want to pick people up. And that's actually a really good point. In my sociology class, my my professor brought up a really good point that a majority of um, a majority of people that are interested in true crime are women. And I actually see that in my in my page. It shows me statistics of this many women follow you, this many men follow you, everything like that. And I'd say at least seventy five percent are women. And she brought up the fact, do you think that women are more interested in this because they are just more aware that they're better victims? You know, they have to be more aware of the things they need to be more cautious of and, you know, things along those lines. And I, I, I agree with that because, you know, again, you being six foot three and a man, it's, it's like a, something that you don't even realize that you feel much safer than somebody that's very petite. And, you know, like being in a crowd of people, you realize when you're a very small person or, you know, a woman, like, wow, if someone wanted to do something to me or take me, it probably wouldn't be very hard to do, you know? So, and having a daughter myself, I struggle, you know, how do I teach her these lessons without making her fearful of the world, you know? So yeah, you got to pump her up with whole milk, whole grain food, and just get her up to that six foot three level. And you know, like no one's kidnapping Sue Bird or any of these other like professional athletes. Serena Williams yeah. isn't getting taken into a van. I was gonna say, and I might be small, but I, I would consider myself feisty. So I feel like at least I have that going for me. You know, at least yeah. you're not like small and me, because then everyone's gonna pick on you. But yeah, I find that fascinating because you know, like the joke is like the women watch all the true crime things, and, yeah. and it's like you know, like are you? aware that like your wife's like a psychopath or whatever. I was going to say they're preparing to kill their husbands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's actually fun. Like, you know, but it, it's kind of funny that if you're fitting that profile, maybe it is kind of, of, of the victim that like, you're almost like 
not like victim watching it, but like, you know, like what, what could happen to me? What victim profiles tend to watch that? I, I don't know. I think that's kind of an yeah. interesting thing that no, more I, women. I thought, yeah, I thought that was a really interesting point for my professor as well. And I think for me, one of the, some of the most intriguing cases I find are cases where I would have fit that, like it, it better allows me to envision, you know, what, why they would have been interested in that person, you know, what they may have looked for, everything like that. And not all killers are going to follow that really organized pattern of having a profile. Like, you know, Ted Bundy is a great example of a killer who had a very, very specific, like brown hair down the part that he wanted them to be a certain size, everything like that. Whereas Richard Ramirez was the opposite. It didn't matter who, you know, male, female, old, young, it didn't matter. It's just whoever came to be, you know? And I, again, that, I think that also makes it difficult. Like, is it an organized person or a disorganized person? Because I think organized killers are going to make it a lot easier to track a pattern. Whereas disorganized killers, if there is no pattern, you know, how do you catch them? Prior to the surveillance state that we live in, where like everyone has a ring camera or a phone or whatever it might be. I was listening to a podcast one time. So that'd be probably, you know, eight years ago or whatever. But the person on there was talking about how easy, like if you were a psychopath to begin with, so like that has to happen. But if you just randomly pick somebody that you've had zero attachment to and they happen to die, right. you would never get caught for the most part because there's mm-hmm. like, they look and they're like, well, who do they know? Like, if you don't know them, you just pick them off the street or whatever. So like, that's very, well, one, you have to be morbid enough to go do that. But like, that's also very, the disorganized person, if there is no pattern, it's harder to find that person. Right. And I was actually just talking to one of my friends about, like, I've come across serial killers that were long haul truck drivers. And, you know, when they would stop at rest stops, they would just pick up a random prostitute and drop them off, you know, when they were done with them. And then, you know, wipe my hands of that. I'm all, you know, and I, in my opinion, that I don't want to like give people ideas, but, you know, it, it, in my opinion, I don't think if you're doing something like that, it would be very, it would be extremely difficult to find a person like that. And I think that's probably why there are so many unknown, you know, like the Texas highway murders, all of those unsolved murders following the Texas, the line of Texas highways. I think it's a great example of, you know, how if you do decide to do that and you just kind of move from place to place, then you just choose whoever it would, how are you going to track that? And then your victims are some of the least loved members of society. So there's not a family looking for them, you know, so the drug addicts, the prostitutes, the things like that. It, mm-hmm. And the Green River Killer. I think that's why the Green River Killer was able to amass such a large victim count because he was smart and he chose victims that police aren't going to spend a ton of money and hours looking for whenever most of the time these people are drug addicts or, you know, they probably don't have very like steady ways to track their personalities or their movements anyways, you know? So how, why are we going to spend all this time looking for them? So yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And there's, specific types of people in society that are much more likely to become victims. That's very sad that, you know, that's like a part of it, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to let you get back to the Girl Scout case okay. before I start yeah. getting derailed. Cause I'm, I'm going to write a couple of things down the loop to. Oh, and fly wh- back on. while we get back into that, I had a thought while we were talking two months before the girls showed up at camp. So in April of 1977, There was a camper that went there early to do some type of training to become like a counselor. She left her tent one day. And when she came back, she actually, there was a notebook in her room where someone had gone through all of her stuff, had eaten some of her food. And in one of her notebooks, someone filled three full pages of notebook paper saying, kill, 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 just on repeat for three pages. 
then at the end of it, it actually said, we will kill three campers or something along those lines. And counselors decided always just to hoax and wound up not doing anything about it. And I think that wound up being the killer. And they just never took into account that that was serious. But another really interesting facet of that is apparently the killer of the Girl Scout murders had a thing for like stealing eyeglasses from women. And that was something where he at the scene, there was actually a pair of eyeglasses found like by the girls' bodies. And the main suspect, Leroy Hart, was actually known to steal eyeglasses. But just a really interesting facet that I thought about. But yeah, that was just kind of like out of left field. But two months before they got there, that happened as kind of like a precursor to the events that followed. Okay, so the girls get there. It's a big happy day. It's the 49th anniversary of yeah. the camp. Is it, It's a Girl Scout camp. That's why it's a Girl Scout. Girl Scout camp, yep. And then that evening, they were all in the dining hall singing songs, eating dinner, and then a large storm rolled through. And that uh, that storm actually forced all of the campers back to their tents. So around 7 p.m., all of the girls were sent back to their tents. And at that time, Lori Farmer and Michelle Gousset started writing letters to their parents. And that was actually like the last letter that those girls ever wrote to their parents, which is really sad. But at 745, Lori Farmer writes a letter to her parents. And at this time, um, Denise Milner, I, I actually want to talk about her a little bit. So she was one of the victims. She was, was treated differently by the killers than the other girls were. And I find that interesting because she was the only girl out of all three of them that was African-American. She also had a little bit more of a personality type of being apparently the weekend of leaving. She was telling her mom she was scared. She didn't want to go. And her mom actually told her like, no, you need to go. You already committed to this and wound up forcing her to go. And once she, I know. And then once she arrived there, she apparently continued to have a hard time. And a camp counselor actually had to come in and like soothe her and tell her everything was going to be okay. And I just find this really sad because she was the one that the killer really kind of took his time with and singled her out. And I find that interesting because she was a minority in that camp. She was actually one of the only African-American campers out of the hundreds that were there. And the main suspect, Dean Hart, so was a minority. And I found that kind of like an interesting little connection between those two but they actually have a timeline of events if you wanted me to kind of go over yeah. that like the, yep. the night of the murders themselves so at 7 45 Lori writes to her parents telling her about her day what she did and then around 12 12 30 a.m camp counselors actually see a flashlight like moving around tent number eight they were in tent number eight at the end of that horseshoe bend in Camp Kiowa. So they saw a flashlight moving around, but they assumed it was another counselor. So they just ignored it. And then around 1 to 1.30 a.m., camp counselors actually started hearing groans and grunts coming from Camp Kiowa. And she reportedly said they didn't sound human. And once they heard that sound, they apparently shone their flashlight over in the direction and the sound stopped. And then when they walked away, it started again. They signed the light back on and it stopped. So, I mean, to me, that was, that killer was like out there, maybe with the girls out in the woods versus in the tent at that time. And then at 1.30 a.m., counselors and campers heard faint moaning sounds coming from tent number seven at the end of the horseshoe. And at 2 a.m., the tent directly beside tent number eight, where the girls were located, reported that somebody came in to her tent 
shined a flashlight right in her eyes and then immediately just walked out, which I find pretty interesting. That makes me wonder if at that time the perpetrator was finished binding the victims and was potentially looking for another victim. Once I get to the crime scene itself, it was a very frenzied attack. And in my opinion, I think it's very possible that he was looking for another victim at that time. But and then at 3 a.m., campers heard a cry saying, mommy, mommy, which breaks my heart. And at 6 a.m., the bodies were found in the middle of the trail by one of the camp counselors when she went to shower. And they were found inside of their sleeping bags. But all of the bodies were kind of like crumpled at the very bottom of the bag as if someone kind of like shook them like into the bottom of the bag. And whenever authorities were actually talking about that detail, a lot, a lot of them got choked up. I think just realizing how small they were and with how, what happened to them, it's just so so sad. Right next to the bodies, they actually located nylon rope, duct tape, and a flashlight. The flashlight is really big because I mentioned that around 1 a.m., the camp counselor saw a flashlight in the middle of the woods thinking it was another counselor, but obviously that was the murderer like making his way to the tent or you know moving around it. But the flashlight actually was a black trash bag with tape over the top of it with like a small hole cut out to kind of create like a pinpoint light to mute some of the light and also created a crumpled up newspaper and shoved it inside of the flashlight itself. And that crumpled up newspaper, the date of it, I, I don't remember the exact date, but I need to find the notes on that. Maybe as we're talking, I can find those. But the crumpled up newspaper was actually from the town. So they were able to connect that it was you know, someone, they had just created that flashlight in order to mute it. So it was premeditated to a degree, you know, because premeditation can be 30 seconds prior to the commit to the you committing a crime. So the flashlight being built like that shows that someone had experience doing something like this at night to know that if you mute that light, it's going to be a lot less noticeable. That was a really interesting facet to me about this case. And whenever that came up in trial, prisoner that actually was in prison with Leroy Hart actually said that when he was in prison, Hart taught him how to actually make a flashlight like that, similar to that one. So kind of a connection there, but like forensic evidence and Hart. So I'm trying to, I'm just kind of like going through my notes if you want to stop me. No, no, that's <laughs> fine. That That is, oh, I've never been like so I, I lost for words go on and on and on. Yeah. yeah. That is so, that is like, that's heartbreaking beyond belief. Like I didn't know. I, I never heard of this case. I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm I, you shocked know. you've never heard of this case. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah. I'll scroll through like your page. I was looking at yeah. like, that was good. But, and like, I'll watch, I watched making a murderer. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know how I feel about that. And like, I'll read whatever's in the news, but like for going back and like getting, you know, the whole CSI the and older. discovery plus. Yeah. Right. That's not, right. again, that's, that's your 75, 25. Like, you know, my, yeah. My my twenty five is like much less than that. Uh, that is yeah. that is just, and maybe now that I have children too, but that that is just absolutely heartbreaking uh, yeah. for for them. Let's cover all right. So we have the crime scene. I think I'm I yeah. think I'm pretty good on that. People can go dig more if they want. So all right, they find the children. They they find this evidence. Yeah. Are there tire tracks? Are we close to a town? What's what's the police doing? So. Located next inside the cabin, there was a bloody shoe print. It was a size nine and a half. It's actually a pretty small shoe for a guy. And at this time, the local sheriff immediately, immediately stated that he believed that the suspect was Dean Hart. And this is because Dean Hart was actually an escaped convict. 
he escaped prison in the local area and he had actually been missing from prison for years at that point. Like being just living out in the Ozark foothills because, you know, he grew up in reservation in that area and he apparently knew that area better than anyone, the nooks, the crannies, you know, how to navigate it the best anyone could. So what was um, he in jail for, you know, previously? Yeah. So he was actually in jail for kidnapping and raping two pregnant women. So this, yeah, so there's some connections between this case. And he actually committed that when he was only around 20 years old, so much younger. And this is his first crime. And for it to be as brutal as it was, that really says something. And to me, that follows suit with the later commitment of this crime that I think he would be more than possible doing that. So he was actually already serving a 300-year sentence for the rape of those two girls and wound up escaping. And the sheriff, you know, had he obviously felt a certain way about that because at this time there was actually an election going on. He wanted to become, I don't remember what position it was. He wanted to go from being sheriff to being some somewhere higher up in the government. And because of this, people think that, you know, it looked bad on him for there to be an escaped convict. So he absolutely took every resource he could possible. There was like over 600 people combing this area, everything like that. And they actually didn't find him, I think until six or seven months after the crime, the crime itself. So he was very, very good at hiding out in rugged terrain and only a couple of miles away from Camp Scott and only not even a mile away from his childhood home. They actually found a cave that he used to hide out inside of. And inside the cave, they actually located a message like scribbled on the wall to authorities saying like, you'll never catch me. And there was actually a developed picture from a print. It was a prison picture that he actually developed whenever he was a prisoner. So they were able to connect him being there with the message on the wall. And there was also a newspaper inside of the cave that matched the newspaper that was shoved inside of the flashlight. So another really crucial piece of forensic evidence that connected him to the crime. But because he was a minority and at this time, it seemed that there was a lot of tension between the population in that area and the locals that the, the locals actually stood up for Hart and said, no, 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 he's not capable of this. He was a football star. Of course, he was a football star in high school. And you know, he was so good looking and he never could have done that. So there was actually a really big community rallying behind him stating that they didn't think he was capable of that. So despite all that forensic evidence, but they were concerned for violence from like local on local. Like why, if, if he's in jail for 300 years, you know, yeah. such a great, all, you know, uh, all American, all high school. Right. So amazing. Yet he does these two horrible crimes before. And he's right. in jail for 300 years. Are, so are they just trying to calm tensions? Was this, did the Native Americans think they were being targeted unfairly? Yeah, I, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I didn't look that far into that whenever I was looking into everything. But it just sounds like, yeah, the community did not agree with the sheriff in that. And then, you know, when a new a new sheriff stepped in as they were investigating everything and he apparently claims that they found a murder weapon. And then later during trial, when this was brought up, he claimed he never said that. And then it was lost. And there was just a lot of 
inconsistencies with the authorities in general on this case. So I kind of understand why the community might have been like, oh, I don't know. I mean, if the sheriff seemed to have already an inkling, because it sounds like as soon as the crimes were committed, he said, this this was Dean Hart, you know, without a doubt, this is who we're looking for, for the murders, everything like that. So I think, you know, maybe just you thought he jumped to that conclusion too quickly or something like that. I have no idea. Yeah. Lazy detective work instead. Cause I guess if you still <laughs> right. found him, you know, you pull the Denny's and he's there, you're still arresting him because he still has another right. 290 years to serve. So it's not like yeah. they were just going door to door. Like, Hey, you like, you have a size nine shoe. So it's like a Cinderella yeah. shakedown. <laughs> right. Yeah. But that's, Oh, okay. So they catch him seven months later. He's living in the Ozark foothills. They bring yeah. him in. He, he Goes on trial for this? Yeah, so he goes on trial for it. And it, the DNA testing at that time made it really difficult to connect him through fluid found on the bodies of the girls. So whenever they looked at it at that time, they did find out that the structure of the semen found at the scene was really similar to hearts because it actually had like a defect in it. That's really rare to see in men so they weren't able to 100% say that that was his because at that time, that DNA testing just wasn't there. But they were able to say that the structure of the semen itself does match what we found at the scene. So they had that forensic evidence. And then whenever they actually came, only seven hours, and they came back with a not guilty verdict for the crime of those girls. So he was just sent back in prison for the other ones. After that, it doesn't sound like he was ever convicted of the crimes of the Girl Scout murders, and that's why they still consider it being like unsolved. So, oh yeah. wow, yeah, that's uh, yeah. did that sheriff? Do you know if he won that position that he was running for? I did not look into that, and I should have. That's a really good question. I do not know that. I hope that answer was no. Yes, I agree with that. It, the whole trial, the compiling of the evidence, the search for him, all of it sounded like not great police work. But again, it was in the 1970s. I don't think. There was necessarily the resources that, you know, police officers have today in order to, you know, create these really vivid pictures of what happened at these crimes that we're able to. But they actually were able to, through the DNA testing recently, they were able to confirm that that was part semen at the crime scene. So it later, way, way, way later, they were able to confirm that. But before that, it just seemed like they, they really didn't know. So. Yeah, so you can look at the OJ trial. And that was 92, I think. And they talked about DNA then. And the entire jury was just like lost. They're like, there's these little things and blood that belong to one person. Like this sounds right. That's crazy. You know, and and hence that's why he walks around now and gets to write a book that says, if I did it, I would do it this way. It's like, wow, you just described the murder scene. There was a case that just came out where he actually released a statement saying, if I believe he's going to get get off on it, like on a, there was some murder that happened that, can't remember what it was, but I I saw him make a statement saying I think he's going to get off on that crime. But that's just unbelievable that you you have the audacity to like go on national TV and I don't know why he's on a pariah. Like I'm not sure why people put him. I you know I know he he was on Twitter at one point. Casey Anthony was just thriving in social settings. You know you see pictures come out of her in Florida, like in in bars, just having the time of her life. And again, it fits with that profile of you clearly carry no remorse because we all know that they committed those crimes, you know, like the entire world has to believe that they committed those crimes. But yeah. Yeah. I didn't, you know, I wasn't tuning into true TV or whatever every day to watch that, that case. 
But I followed that closely as it was going on and seeing yeah. like, the evidence they presented. And I was shocked when it came back that she was found not guilty. Oh, beyond shock. Beyond shock. And if you look back on the case now, how? I mean, the fact that she walked investigators through an entire building of office workers saying hi, like she knew them and like playing this part, that should have been right there. I mean, wow. It's it's crazy that she got off on that. And she still has boyfriends and is still like living a normal life. People still want to date her. And, you know, it's just crazy. I always find that crazy. You'll see, you know, the serial killer in jail will have like love letters written to him. Like women will write to him. Oh, or, yeah, like, that's one of, huge. Charles Manson yeah. was married in jail. Like he had a, a wife at like, some point. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And like, that's just crazy. Uh, and for anybody, I, I don't know what the point it's not even like she's famous. It's not even like she's like a D-list celebrity. Like she is like a horrible human being. Right. Like not opinion, just like a true fact of a horrible human being. I was going to say true fact. Yeah. 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 I think for women, a lot, I think a lot of women carry that like savior complex whenever they meet these men that have committed these terrible things and they think, oh, well, you love me. You know, I fixed you. I think that I is you, yeah. a big thing. Like yeah. you're, you know, trying to fix them. But that to me is, hilarious and laughable to think yeah. that and i don't they know probably didn't have the best childhood growing up and then this is their i would think probably compensating not. yeah but for the guy yeah. going after casey anthony like i'm just not sure it's not like a random hookup at the bar and you're like oh man i didn't realize that's who it was hey thanks for let me dodge that bullet there but like okay like she kills kids man like probably find someone else oh my god yeah singular, it's singular. It's it's yeah. And so but then that case i guess is still unsolved right because she is found innocent uh, they were trying to blame the dad at one point. She was blaming yeah, the dad at one she, point. She came out and said that her dad sexually assaulted her when she was a little girl. And she, and apparently, um, what did they came out and said that Haley drowned in the pool. And I think I'm sure you heard that 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 was the main thing. Was she said Haley drowned in the pool when dad was there, and they found her together and all of this. So she tried to you know place some of that blame off on her dad, and that is so sad. Apparently, her parents got divorced after that. I mean, she tore, you know, and that's the thing is with these cases, you realize each victim, it's it's not just one person's life that is destroyed. I mean, it's an entire family, you know, and the, the wreckage that it leaves behind for so many people is just unbelievable. And then these people just go through living life, you know, wonder what it would be like to not have a conscience. I'd probably be a lot less stressed out. Yeah. So at least with the Girl Scout case, like that guy wasn't connected to them. So he's not thinking about like, this is just a horrible, evil human person acting out on whatever mental. Like a time of opportunity. Right. And going and doing that. OJ, like whatever, I guess maybe severely jealous and all the stuff like fit up rage, probably like CTE playing football, like definitely probably some brain damage happening there. Didn't work out. It's like, okay, like I kind of, you know, I guess. If I have to like assign getting it, I kind of get that. But Kaylee Anthony, if you don't love your child, there are places that will just take your child. Like you can I take them to the, you can, your, her parents seemed like they would have taken their granddaughter. Yeah. I believe it was an accident. I'll probably be like one of the few people. So I, you know, she kept telling authorities she was with Zanny the nanny. She kept saying that, you know, if she had a Xanax issue, I think it, it's not unreasonable to think she might've given Kaylee a little bit of Xanax thinking it was going to make her sleep gave her too much and Kaylee didn't wake up again, you know? So I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily think that she went out thinking planning, like I'm going to take her out. She's just an issue. 
I do think that there are circumstances that are accidents too. And they, there was evidence of duct tape being covered over her mouth too. That I remember that whenever they um, found her skull. So I guess. Right. So, yeah. So I, would that um, yeah, if, I don't think it was an accident. It, yeah. I, again, I don't know the whole case, but I'm pretty sure there was yeah. a computer searches a week or two before she even went missing. Yeah. Maybe you know? I just need to look back into that. And I, that was, it's one of those cases that was so saturated in the media that I just didn't ever look into it too heavily. I usually look yeah. into cases that haven't been covered really, you know, really deeply. And some of them have just, they just get talked about constantly. So yeah. yeah it's and, hard to figure out, you know, what's real and what's not. Like if you watched Making a Murderer, like you come out of that thinking like, oh my God, like they framed Stephen Avery and, you know. Right he needs to get out of prison and his disabled nephew, they, they really got him right. to crack and do all this stuff. And I forget the attorney she works for the getting like, convicted people out of jail. I forget what her name, uh, Kathleen, Kathleen. I don't know. I forget her name. I, I don't know. So she, she's really good at getting uh, people out of jail who are convicted, who apparently are innocent. She's like, she's yeah. really good with that. So she was working okay. with Stephen Avery trying to get him out. So I watched that Netflix series, you know, whenever it came out and I was like, Oh, you know, you also a documentary like I don't know what all the evidence is, and it's like pretty right. easy to cut something out or like you know your story well, how, as how you're pitching it. Sure, it's unbiased. Right. So as I'm watching this biased one, and now apparently there's another documentary out like covering all the missing facts that they have, yeah. and apparently it's like he's just a horrible person and completely did this, but it's it's what's left out of that narrative. You know, like the Tiger King, like that guy should be innocent. I don't know. I I watched his show during lockdowns. Like let that guy yeah. go. He's he's the best. I'm not yeah. looking at the evidence. I don't care about that. Like, let them go. Right. Yeah. You get. You're, you have to hold on to. It. You have to have an opinion. You have to stick to it, and you can't take right. in the information. Right. And it, just like how when you see someone, like the first ten to twenty seconds, you're going to generally sum up how you feel about that person, you know. And I, I think it's the same thing with cases. Like the first twenty seconds, you're going to be like, oh, I think that person did it. And generally, once a person thinks that way, it's really, really hard to sway them in the other direction. And I think that's a big issue with our justice system. You know, if how can you ensure that when you bring a juror, a juror in that they haven't seen anything on the case, they have no prior knowledge, you know, and that they're going in with totally unbiased opinions on everything, you know, and I think I, I could talk about the justice system all day, but I won't get that into was, that. <laughs> so the Kelly Anthony one, that, that story was huge. That little girl was missing. Yeah. For, you know, for a long time. And then to find 12, people who didn't hear about it. Like I'm more concerned about their state of mind that like zero current events. This isn't like, Hey, did you see, did you see the football game? And Taylor Swift was there. Like, okay, don't care about it. Move on from that. Like, like national case all over, find a little girl. Where is she? Bye. I get if you're going out of state, but like she lives in your area. Like you have zero idea. So that kind yeah. of then seems like an opportunity to, you know, you can write a book afterwards. All those OJ drawers were famous afterwards for that's kind of turned into another level of celebrity i don't know what letter you want to sign it like f celebrity yeah, but that's like, true. absolutely i mean charles manson you know half the population is going to say he's he's a psycho half the population is probably going to say he's a little bit of a genius you know and just to say it's the same thing he has a bit of a i think people look at him a certain way because he clearly has control a deep level of control over other humans and i think at the core that's that's interesting in general that people are able to like get into somebody's mind like that and able to twist and turn and, you know, eventually turn them into what they want. And I think a really good example of that is my husband was a soldier for years and, you know, they really break them down and build them back up and do exactly what they want to be. And to this day, he can withstand things mentally that I'd never, you know, I could never do. And 
I think a lot of that is because like the human brain is really so adaptable to what it needs to be. And yeah, so the topic of like cult leaders and everything is so interesting. That's a top, the whole topic on itself for your podcast. <laughs> I am fascinated by cults. I interviewed a very nice woman who she was a Mormon. And then she left that church because she didn't like the, the foundings of it. Like that she got older, she found out more and like disagreed with a lot of it. Yeah. But like a true, a true Waco cult, a, mm-hmm. a branch divinity, like that, something like that. I need to, I need to find that person. I need the crazy. I, I don't Heaven, understand. Yeah. And I, Heaven's Gate is a really interesting one. If you don't know about that, I think Mark Applewhite was the name of the leader. Um, they believe like Haley, Haley's comet was going to take them to like a different, a different planet when it flew by. So he convinced all of the members to commit suicide at the same time. On the day this passed through, he had them all wearing the exact same attire. So they were all androgynous looking, all had the same haircuts, all were wearing the same shoes and the same, you know, the same pants. And it's just super interesting. It's not interesting because it's so horrific, but again, interesting, like, how can you convince this mass group of people that, you know, this is true, but there's a psychological term. It's folly. Um, it's, it's essentially like mass psychosis where people can share this like mass belief, even no matter how crazy the notion is, if you get a large enough group of people together, they can all experience that together. And that, that to me is really, really intriguing. Yes, so I get that. I get the mass psychosis, but to have it just keep going on and on, uh, you know, like David Koresh was like, "Hey, come join my cult or my religion, or I, I know the truth." I know, and like, but people are, like, uh, yeah, let's go. Like, I'm gonna sell all my stuff. And he's like, uh, "Great, give me all your money and give me your wife, and you go work the fields now, and you don't come back." And people, are like, yeah, yeah, great, great, come, yep. okay, yep, we'll we'll listen to some prayers later. The Can't SLDS wait. Church, yeah, yeah, like Warren Jeff, the power that I mean. It's- sickening the power and it, it wasn't just Warren Jeff it was his father I mean it, the predatory nature seemed to like carry through that that generation the, the like lines of that generations of that family it's just wow I mean I I've never been very religious but the stuff that I come across it doesn't seem like it's all that great it seems like some people will twist that and use it as a way to have a lot of control over people so yeah, their overall message of selling them, like as I'm following up on these things or reading them, like, well, okay, that really, like, that's what it did. Like, that's all it yeah. took for you to go and do. Oh, I right. think it helped. I think for people that probably feel really hopeless, you know, if you experience things like really deep depression and kind of were on that last leg of like, I just need anything to give me a little bit of hope, I do understand that aspect, you know, because. I don't have like a really strong familial unit. You know, I don't have my parents in my life and things like that. And sometimes I do question like, well, it would probably be pretty nice to have a large group of people that all kind of seem to share the same ideals and everything like that. So I really do understand the idea of like living in that type of like society of we're all kind of outcasts and we all kind of need somebody. You know what I mean? So Yeah. No, yeah, I guess I get that. I feel like you, you know, like the individual people, I, I get that. Like, if you're not feeling great, like, I feel like if maybe you started to walk off that way, like your husband probably like, Hey, like checks and balances here. Like, are you are like, this is what we're doing, you know? And like, oh, yeah, as you no, talk it out. Luckily, yeah. Luckily he, he keeps me pretty grounded. I was, he won't let me do that. Yeah. So that, so it's like when the whole families go and like the husband and wife, like if it's yeah. individual, like I, I get that. Like, Hey, I'm, I don't have a lot going on. And like, you guys seem like you do. I'm going right. to travel with you people and you're going somewhere fun. 
Like if I ran that past my wife, but like, see you later. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, All right. I'll send but you a postcard, like, I guess. Right. Yeah. No, but if you're looking at like the situation with, gosh, what is the, I can't even think of his name over in Guyana where all of those people killed themselves by like the cyanide. Jonestown? Yeah, of course. I can't believe I remember. I just forgot that. But yeah, that was, that's kind of a good example of that. It's just, yeah, all of it is just crazy. But yeah, I, that's wild. Uh, I mean, yeah, I need to try and pull up my notes for the West Memphis 3 case. I, if, that one, I don't have my notes pulled up right away, so I'll kind of have to like go back and forth on. That's um, fine. So I have current serial killers. Do you are currently in the United States? Do do they have numbers for this? Or that's that a good question. I don't think around? I've looked that up. I don't know. Okay, because they said that yeah, guy I, in New York who was busted. I guess earlier this year, late last year, he was. Yeah. Uh, he was like Craigslist prostitutes or something, and, and was killing them. Mm. Yeah. No, I I didn't see anything about that. I the most recent case that I really was intrigued by just like everybody else was the college murders over in I'm blanking Ohio, right, right now or Iowa Ohio Iowa or, yeah so yeah, I actually wrote a, I wrote an article about that as well as soon as that came out so that case to me like it's just mind-blowing you know once I found out that the murderer actually was only in the house between like eight and 12 minutes to be able to commit all of those I mean it just blows my mind so yeah, uh, I'm interested to see what happens with him. That guy, like, he do- he doesn't pass the eye test. Like, he looks super creepy. So, like, as soon as they got him, it was does. like, uh, you're guilty. He does, right? And I agree with that. He he definitely stands out a little bit because in a crowd. But <laughs> yeah, so 23 and Me has helped solve some old cases. I don't know if they'd be serial killers in general, but they just arrested a guy. Uh, I just saw the news the other day, but it was through 23andMe that they they were able to trace him back. And I think it was, I think he killed somebody in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Just through people putting their, you know. Samuel yeah. Little was caught. The He was super infamous, killed dozens of women. But I think he was caught through like gene, genealogy testing like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think this stuff's fascinating. People are just handing over their DNA, trying to find out if they're like Irish or Italian or whatever it might be. And currently they're screwing like generations of their family. They just had no idea about. So, and now the thing that you don't, you don't commit crimes these days if you don't want to get caught because the current advancements in technology and everything makes it extremely difficult and probably a lot easier for the authorities, but so maybe that's a good thing. So it's good. No more committing crimes. Everybody make sure you submit your 23 and me so you're on file. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Good idea. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's get into the West Memphis three. That let's get some good. let's get some overview. What's happening? Okay. Let me try and pull up my notes. That one I could just probably start talking about. Okay. So that happened in nineteen ninety-three, kind of in the middle of the entire like satanic panic. So they actually consider this like the modern day witch hunt style. It happened in 1993, June of 1993. Christopher Byers, Stevie Branch, and Michael Moore, they were all eight years old. They were traveling. They were riding on their bikes. They were last seen in their neighborhood traveling towards Stevie Branch's house whenever his stepfather was calling him home. At 8 p.m. that night, Christopher Byers' dad, Mark Byers, reported them missing. And then by 8.30, they actually, he, along with authorities in the local area, were actually traveling towards Robin Hood Hills to look for the boys. So Robin Hood Hills was essentially like a wooded area in Arkansas, in West Memphis, Arkansas, that the local kids were known to play at. So there was a northern portion and a southern portion. 
and the kids were known to play in the southern portion. So whenever they went to look for the boys, they immediately traveled to the southern portion and didn't find anything. And they were actually located, their bodies were found in the northern portion the following day. And the reason that's kind of interesting is because the northern portion was actually known for drug addicts and transients to visit. So kids were actually scared of that section. So the the fact that they were over there was kind of odd in general. Like they generally wouldn't have traveled along that area unless they saw something that was intriguing to them or someone led them there. They found them the following day. And then essentially they immediately went to arrest three local boys, Jesse Miss Kelly, Damian Eccles, and Jason Baldwin. Tribe West Memphis, it was a small town, really religious. It was really kind of like in the thick of the Bible Belt. So these three kids were into heavy metal music and wearing dark clothes and really just didn't follow suit with what was acceptable in that time, in that area in particular. So apparently at that time, before the murders, the sheriff and the authorities were actually looking into the boys for actually performing like satanic rituals, which is kind of ridiculous because essentially when they were asked them why they were doing that, they said it was because they listened to heavy metal music. And I think, you know, they saw Damien carrying around like certain books on the occult and things like that. But clearly looking into the occult and practicing Satanism are very different things. So they essentially immediately arrested those boys they started interviewing Jesse Miss Kelly. He was the youngest from what I think he was the youngest from what I remember. And he also only had an, an IQ of 72. So when they interviewed him, he was under 18, I, IQ of 72, didn't have a lawyer present, didn't have a parent present. And they actually interviewed him for 12 hours, like 12 hours the first time they interviewed him. He confessed to the murder naturally, you know. And then, so they, they took that and ran with it and then prosecuted all three boys for the murders of these three little boys. No forensic evidence matched any of the boys to the crime. There was nothing, even though they found a hair that matched, they found a hair in, clutched in the palm of um, one of the boys that matched Stevie Branch's stepfather, Terry Hobbs. And then they found a piece of fabric clutched in another boy's hand that matched someone else. So there was, there was forensic evidence that quote, pointed in every other direction except for the three that were arrested and tied for this. So throughout the trial, they brought in an expert on the occult and Satanism, even though during the trial, he reportedly admitted that it was like an online degree program that he didn't even have to take any tests on. So he was up here, you know, really like screwing with the livelihood of these boys' lives for the rest of their lives and testifying that you know, well, these bite marks on the boys match, you know, this satanic ritual. He claimed that because the murders were committed on a holiday, it was actually like a satanic holiday, the day that it was committed. He claimed that that pointed to the fact that it was, you know, a ritualistic sacrifice. But in my opinion, nothing about the autopsy pointed towards that. There are no types of any like weird placements of objects around them, anything like that. So you want me to kind of go on to like autopsy reports or yeah like whatever's interesting for the case so these okay. these three kids are are murdered right and they're in the woods how yeah. do, do you know how big this park is like from the south to the north mm-hmm. like this is miles that like it was just inconvenient for the authorities to go check 
So, well, the reason they went to check it was because one of the father of one of the boys actually led them there. And that was kind of an interesting point in the case because later he actually was like considered as a suspect for a little bit. So he immediately led them to Robin Hood Hills claiming he thought that that's where they were, even though no one else knew that. So he was the first one that led them out there. They didn't just immediately start searching. So all three boys were found near each other inside of a creek and they all essentially were hogtied with shoelaces. The shoelaces are interesting to me. That shows to me like a crime of opportunity. If someone was preparing for it, I would think they would have a better type of binding, like a rope or something along those lines. So all three boys were bound with their shoelaces, which is super interesting. And two of them had like bite marks to the face ears were like violently pulled and many was a frenzied attack all of them showed signs of sexual assault and then one of the boys in particular was again just like the girl scout murders which seemed to be kind of singled out a little bit like he was treated differently than the others so that with both cases it just kind of makes you wonder like why that specific victim seemed to be like special quote-unquote special in, in the worst way. I, this isn't like the good way. This is in the worst. Right. Absolutely. Right. Not special, but yeah, just yeah. different to the perpetrator that they were treated a little bit differently. All right. So we have the, the kids. The, it's a horrible crime scene. They're in a creek. So the water is probably contaminating some of the scene. But the one kid yeah. has some hair on them and there's some fabric. They so, arrest these teenagers the next day. Yes. Or soon? Um, or I'm not sure if it was, I don't know the exact day. I'm not sure if it was the, the next day, but it was definitely within the first, the week, the week or so after the murders, definitely. Okay. But um, one interesting aspect about the crime scene itself was that there was actually no blood located at the scene. So despite how like vicious the attack was, all of them had fractures to the skull. So like all the injuries that would create a lot of blood at the scene, there was none found. So that, and also another aspect was the boys didn't have mosquito bites. So if they were alive when brought out to the creek, they would have had mosquito bites because of the time of the night that they were brought out. So it's, I, in my opinion, I think that they were actually attacked elsewhere and then brought there, which makes more sense because how would you clean up? It would be like over 10 liters of blood in the area, unless it was all committed inside of the creek bed. That which would naturally wash away any evidence, but all three boys were found like off the not in the water itself, but kind of up and over, like on the creek bank itself. Later, HBO did a documentary called Paradise Lost, and that's actually where I learned so much about this case. It was wonderfully done. So they did a documentary and they put a little more emphasis on the father of one of the boys, Mark Byers. He had a very interesting personality type. If you listen to him talk, it was very much really deeply religious. Like whenever he would talk about the murder of his son, it was Satan himself and all of these crazy like descriptions of what happened. And then later on, he apparently gifted the production crew of HBO a serrated knife that matched the wounds on some of the boys. And HBO turned it over to authorities. And they actually found his blood and his son's blood on the knife itself, which is, yeah. And, you know, obviously they were never able to prove or disprove that he did it, but his wife actually died two years after his son died under mysterious circumstances as well. So despite those three boys being arrested immediately, there were actually some 
really, really good suspects that matched the forensic evidence and were never tried for it. So in my opinion, I mean, they, they should have tried Mark Byers, the father of Christopher Byers and Terry Hobbs, the stepfather of Stevie Brands, because both of them were in one way or another connected to the crime scene through, you know, forensic evidence. So I think that that was kind of a missed opportunity there. All of three boys were convicted of the murders, sentenced to life in prison, and they weren't released until decades later. I think it was two or three decades. I think they were just released within the last like 10 10-ish years. And they, so they served all that time in prison, still claiming their innocence. And they actually had people rally behind them, like Johnny Depp and all of these famous celebrities claiming their innocence and stuff like that. So it was really like a big deal in the media at that time. The father and the stepfather, are they still alive now? Yeah. From what I understand, they are still alive. I know that the stepfather, he is still alive and he actually sued the Dixie Chicks for defamation because the Dixie Chicks came forward claiming that he believed that he was the killer. Because he did that, he actually sued her for defamation and inadvertently put himself under oath. And they started questioning him and come to find out two weeks before the murder, he actually found out that his wife had cheated on him, which is the mother of one of the boys that was murdered. So really, really interesting facts there that came out way later. And then when the mom was asked if she thought he was capable of it, she said he wasn't the type that got angry. He was the type that got even. So in my opinion, I've always thought that Terry Hobbs, which is the stepfather, committed the murders. Of all three? I think that it was him. Yeah. I think there was generally with cases like this, when there's multiple victims, I think there's always that question of how could one person do this? And I had the same question. How can you convince three? I mean, they're eight years old. I mean, some eight-year-olds are as big as I am, you know? So how can you convince three, you know, reasonably sized kids to not run away from you in a wooded area, you know, that any any rational person that is thinking they're in danger, they're all going to run in different directions, you know? But they were able to, they felt safe with whoever they were, were with. And that, to me, leads me to think that it was either, it was one of the dads. It wasn't a stranger. I right. don't think it was. A, yeah. Yeah. Probably let them out there. And then the, the skull fractures happen and then all the other horrible stuff. Like otherwise yeah. one person's being attacked. The other ones would just run away. Right. Like maybe the initial attack as in like the, the ones that would have slowed them down occurred somewhere else. And then later on the more, you know, horrendous stuff took place when they had a little more like isolation from the rest of the population. Cause Robin Hood Hills was relatively isolated. I don't know the exact size, but I mean, if you look at an aerial map, it was it was located right along a highway and it was a decent, I mean, it spanned a decent area. Whoever took those kids there to that specific area knew the area very well. He knew he, the victim, whatever, or the perpetrator knew that they were going to have privacy there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, we don't have harsh enough laws in this in this society. Yeah, that's an interesting topic to get into is like, do you believe in the death penalty? And as I'm getting older, my views on that are really starting to kind of go back and forth. Yeah, Yeah. I'm going back to like medieval times and like hanging pirates from like the front of like a town. Their toenails. That's that's what my husband would say. He's always an eye for an eye, you know, and his opinion is simple. Yeah. And then, you know, so you'd feel bad. For the couple that maybe were innocent or whatever, but even out everyone else, like really fast. Yeah. 
that, that, yeah, that's terrible. The celebrities getting involved. Kim yeah. Kardashian was really big on some person in Texas who was just yeah. put to death. She was and helping a, a lot of people be, that were wrongfully convicted getting yeah. out of prison, apparently. She got the uh, that grandmother. I guess she's a grandmother now, whatever. Um, Johnson. I forget her name, but she was uh, she was selling drugs, but like not re- like she was selling drugs. Okay, so that's fine. Whatever. But like what, she was like, like this lead? big drug dealer. Yeah. yeah, but they got her for the three strikes real fast. And then it's a lifetime in prison. Yeah. And they're like, oh, well, I that's mean, I, I think she was yeah. like somewhat of a major drug dealer, but like yeah. people were giving her. I, I don't fully know. But she got that woman out of, out of jail. But then there was a guy in Texas who was going to be put to death. And then she got behind him. And apparently the DNA evidence, uh, this, guy, this guy committed horrific crimes on a little girl. And the DNA evidence was just like, uh, okay, his blood was on the girl. Like other stuff was on the girl. And it's all matching right. him. But then Kim Kardashian was like, we need to save him and, and stop the death penalty. And I was like, all right, I appreciate when you oh, amplify be a, a good not. message, but also if right. you're sitting here, like maybe you have to dive in a little more and not just jump in whatever someone just told you to do. I would hope that if you, you'd have, I would hope if you are in a position of power like Kim Kardashian, which is funny because who the fuck cares about Kim Kardashian, but I would think he's consulting someone that actually knows about this stuff and it's not just uh, maybe like, kanye oh, told her i don't know <laughs> you know so maybe it was yeah. manic rants he was telling her alice johnson was the the woman who was released she was the drug dealer one that she was able kim kardashian was able to get trump to pardon and get her out of jail yeah. um, so i think that seemed good like the three strikes law uh, california has and some other states it, it seems that for some petty stuff you can next thing you know you're in jail for That's life so yeah. i haven't even gotten a speeding ticket like i am the most <laughs> straight edge and it's funny that i'm like so into some of the starker stuff because i i am so boring like even in high school i was a kid that was like no maybe we shouldn't drink so much guys like that probably doesn't sound like such a good idea you know so like i've always been very following the rules you know everything like that and i think it just blows my mind that some people are capable of doing such. i mean it's like it's hard to even wrap your mind around that people can have like such sick and twisted desires and then just walk them walk among us like everybody else you know like they just fit in and you just have no idea so yeah that's you'll have to look into the the new york serial killer i think they arrested him like two months ago but he was married and he was going and finding prostitutes on his back page and then coming back home at night to the wife and like she's like oh i had no idea whatsoever he was just going around killing a lot of the times they are married a lot of the times they are married which is really interesting to me you know because it makes you wonder is that your one opportunity to act out something that you just clearly didn't feel like you could talk to your wife about, you know, because you hear about men that search out, you know, sex workers who, you know, if they're interested in specific types of like fetishes and things like that, that their wives aren't capable of doing, and then they're going to seek it somewhere else. And I'm sure that that's a lot of it too, is they're not capable of acting this out in their real lives, that they're going to create some fake life. And, you know, live in that reality when they can and then go back to their wife whenever they're whenever they're done. And, you know, close to my home a few a few years back at a local prison like thrift store, three women were actually held at gunpoint and one was murdered because she refused to give the murderer like oral sex whenever he was attacking them. And he wound up being a husband and a father. And they arrested him at home when he was at home just sitting with his family, you know. And it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter that being a family person says nothing about someone's ability to do something terrible, you know? Yeah. That switch that can get turned on and off is just so. Yeah. The compartmentalization is what's scary. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's like, how many of these people, this, this one I need to know too. And I need to know how many serial killers are out there. How many am I interacting with on a daily basis? Probably a lot more than you'd like to think. Yeah. When I go to the grocery store and start staring at everybody, like, I, I know you. <laughs> right. No. Yeah. It's terrible. <laughs> so have you ever looked into a cold case? Like you're, you're deep diving in all this stuff. Are you going to try to solve something? So that's actually a funny point. In my hometown, there was a really brutal unsolved murder that happened, I think back in the 1980s. And I wrote a case about it when I first started my my blog. And then I actually, one night, just decided to start looking through like missing child databases and looking to see if any missing kids kind of matched the profile of the victim of the Jane Doe that was found in my hometown. And I, I did find a couple of people, like a couple of little girls that went missing. And I sent it. I actually have a couple of family members in law enforcement and I sent that to them. But, you know, I feel like, I guess for me, there's only so much you can do when you don't have access to the resources that authorities do. You know, you, you hear about the night stalker being essentially caught by that woman, Michelle, I don't remember her name. She wrote the book gone in the wind or something like that about the murders. And she actually solved the case just by doing decades of research and not being willing to give up, which is incredible to me. But I've never really like sat down in one case tried to like solve it. No, I, <laughs> I she, generally would. <laughs> you're detail oriented. You, you should see, see you yeah. can do with us. There is I would a... definitely say being detail oriented is one of my strong suits, but I guess because I don't have like schooling behind anything or an actual expertise, I kind of question like, well, who am I to try and no, no. You so know. there is this <laughs> kid. In, uh, well, he's a kid. He's in college. There's this young man. Uh, I'm gonna try to get him on the show. Who lives in my town? And he was going to college in Pennsylvania somewhere. And he he likes all this criminal stuff. So he was yeah. he solved a cold case through the genealogy. He was going back and was able to find. And then presented to the him. police and came into this whole thing and you know gave them the whole presentation. Yeah, so I'm I'm gonna try to see if, if he can come on at some point. But he yeah. was he whole complete cold case and went back and like laid out everything for them and how it was and how he's able to trace this back and and he did it and the kids like he was wow. 18 or 19 years yeah. old or something. Well, he needs to go into a into the field of being a law enforcement officer because that's awesome. Good for him. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I think I've never be... done anything that important. <laughs> Yeah, not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. Plenty That's of time. Right. Yeah, I'll send you a, a link. I'll, I'll Google the article. And I'll, I'll send you the link. You can read about the kid. That sounds but, good. I'll have yeah. to read it. Yeah, but pretty cool. All right, what is next? What What are you working on? What is interesting you? Yeah, that is a good question. So since I started going to school for all of this, my page has actually kind of taken like a back burner because now that I'm focusing on school, I don't have you know six. To compile that West Memphis food case, I mean, that took me two to two and a half weeks of researching for hours a day, you know, so when I, whenever I do delve into these cases, it truly is a big commitment because I, I don't like doing things like half-assed. And I think that's, you know, when you see your detail oriented, I think whenever I come up with a question, I'm like, oh, well, you need that answer to create a full picture. And I think that was one of my reasons of like hesitation with this podcast, because like verbally telling these details, I know I'm not covering like every specific detail because for me, the exact time that happened, the exact murder weapon, you know, the days that they were found, like all of those things create this larger picture that I think create also a factual picture. 
And I just always want to make sure that I'm providing, you know, that information without <laughs> hearing anyone wrong. So yeah. You had great information. You were worried if we could go 60 minutes. And I was like, I promise you that this is going to go fast and we'll be talk so much. You you had an easy one with me. I just don't stop talking. <laughs> no, this is perfect. Yeah. And but after yeah. as as we started getting into the Girl Scout ones, I was like, uh, I don't maybe I made a mistake. I don't know if like my stomach's ready for this. Oh, and oh my gosh. We didn't touch on like anything. Yeah, like, I, I and we still got out of that. I, I, yeah, my <laughs> face is on that. You were just like, Yeah, yeah. Like that. I couldn't even talk. My facial expressions were, were tough on that. I know. And then I'm sitting here like around groups of people and they're looking at me like, who is this? You know? And I'm like, oh my God. And I told my husband, I swear, people are going to think I'm crazy. Like hearing me talk about this stuff. But you know, if I go into this profession, that's going to be like a part of my life. So, and that's kind of when people ask me what I'm going to school for. And I'm like, yeah, criminology. Well, what is that? You know? And then you tell them, they're like, yikes. Okay. Well, I'm not, so sure I want to talk about that. So (laughs) it's very much like a hit and miss topic with people. Either they're really interested in it or they're really freaked out by it. So I, I'm thankful that at least my spouse is the one that's like, that is so interesting, you know, because my life would probably be a lot more boring if I didn't have anybody to talk to you about it. So these cases are all fascinating. And whenever I do get sucked into one on, you know, true TV or discovery, whatever it is, they're, they're just fascinating. And it, it's like sad that it's like real life. And like, you know, but you take a step back and you just watch it from this informative exactly. or entertaining the ability to step back and look at it from an outsider's perspective. But when I'm writing the cases, I think that takes that away from me. It, it more, it feels a lot more personal whenever I'm researching it, because I'm writing about the parents and, you know, the statements they released about their kids and the memorials they created for their kids. It, it's a lot different. It's more, it's a lot more intimate for me whenever I'm writing articles, because I really try and do justice for the victims themselves and what the families went through, you know? So yeah, it's, it's really heavy, but again, I think it's a topic that needs to be talked about in order to prevent future crimes from happening. Cause if we know that you're more likely to get kidnapped in a parking lot, if you have your headphones in and you're looking down at your phone and you're not paying attention to your surroundings, then even one person, you know, being safe from that, in my opinion, is worth it, you know? So I think it's, yes, it's a hard topic, but I also think it's one that needs to be discussed, you know, and one that I will talk about with my daughter, you know, to keep her safe. So, yeah. So last Christmas, we went to a a little kid's amusement park that's around here. And they, you know, they had like Christmas lights, like Christmas with Santa. So we've gone to this park every year. The kids love it. It's like little kid rides, like the merry-go-round. There's a roller coaster that's pretty nasty that uh, that my daughter wants to go on four times in a row. And like the fourth time, my my back is killing me. My knees are to my chin. And I'm like, I, I got to get out. I can't do this. <laughs> but I'm too old for this. <laughs> yeah. So, but we go during the day and it's it's nice and it's, it's fun and shaded and like, you know, just kids running around. There's a ton of stuff to do. It's a lot of fun. So we go at Christmas and, you know, you're there for the Christmas lights and you end to see Santa and that happens at five o'clock at night in December. So it's you know, pretty pitch black, you know, you can see right. the rides that light up, but this isn't like a well-lit thing. So there's this little Alice in Wonderland maze that you can run around. So yeah. my son's there. We we run into a couple of our friends from the neighborhood and their kids are there and they're just doing laps. You know, we're at the, I can see the entrance to the maze and we're at the exit <laughs> and they're just doing laps like as fast as they can through this maze. It's not like a hard maze. It's like, you know, it's like two turns and they're going fast, I fast, I fast. like that. Oh, we're like, hey, just burn it off. Then we'll drive home in 30 minutes. You kids will pass out. Right. It's going to be great. 
So I can see my daughter's sneakers underneath. Cause it's only like this, it's almost like a dressing room door closet where you can like see the bottom. Yeah. And, you know, and if like yeah. an adult was there, you could see their head. So I keep seeing her, her sneakers get to the exit and she backs up and she backs up. And then after like five minutes, like I don't see her sneakers anymore. And my son runs by and I'm like, I'm like, Hey, like go find your sister. And he runs through if he comes back. Oh, she's not there. I was like, dude, I said, go find your sister. I didn't say run through as fast yeah. as you can and come back and tell me she's not there. I said, like, please go back, take your time, look for her. Can you, can you do that? Comes back two minutes later. She's not in there. I'm like what? And then so your I mean, heart. Right. Yeah. So that's like, at first I'm like, okay, that's fine. She, okay. She, you're not looking. So I mean, another dad, we walk through real quick. Shit. Like she's not there. I'm like, all right. She really wanted to go on this other ride. So I go check the other ride. And she's not there. All right, let me go find. Uh, so we're splitting up now. The adults are splitting up. You know, the, my family's not handling it very well. Obviously, like, like Obviously, and we're looking, yeah. and this is going on now for about fifteen minutes. Oh, and around God. like the ten minute mark, I was always like, "Oh, she'll be around the corner. She'll be around the corner." And like that 11, 12, 13 minute mark, I was like, "Oh my God! Like she is gone. Like do I do I go to the parking lot and stop the cars coming out? Like right. what what am I?" Like, I'm trying to find an employee. I like find one wherever you want. When you don't need one. I can't yeah. find anybody. You know, so finally I find an employee. They're on the radio, like, oh, hold on, hold on. What are they doing? Uh, luckily, we were taking pictures all the time. So I had a picture from like five minutes ago right. showing her. My wife talks to my daughter all the time. Crazy scenarios that will never happen. Tells her, walks her through, like, hey, if this ever happened, if this ever happened, like, go here. She got lost. She found an attendant. The attendant couldn't phone somebody somehow because she was the doing the ride. So she had to wait. Yeah. But so she was she was missing to us for you know 10, 15 minutes. In her world, she was missing but for 10 seconds. Yeah. Right. But she went and found an, right. a, a, a responsible adult. I cannot imagine like that. I barely touched. And like this is more of like we just didn't have communication to find her. Like she was safe almost instantly. Right. For these people, you know, the the West Memphis three, like they don't have their children for hours. Like, I no, don't know how you do that. You send your kids to camp, you know, right. and then like you, you, you hear people who don't get on planes and then like something horrible happens at a plane. It's like, I just got this yeah. feeling not to go on the plane. And that little girl's like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. No, no, you're fine. Go like, of course. Yeah. But as a parent, that's what you say. Like if you let your kids decide all the time, like nothing would ever happen. They'd have cotton candy for dinner and watch TV all day. But you have to yeah. be like, Hey, like I get, you don't want to go. Like you have to go. We committed. This is what we do. Like yeah. just that heartbreak. Like besides it's, like the obvious disgustingness that happened. Yeah. You know, like, it's just little decisions that these people have no idea are going to change the entire course of their life, you know? And as somebody with pretty severe trauma, I would say that I've learned that lesson like a hard, it's a hard way. It's one second, your life can be this way. And the next, it can be totally different just by a choice, you know? And I think that's probably a really big reason I got so interested in things. I experienced a lot of death as a little girl and, in a way that no one necessarily gave me very many answers to. This is why they're gone. They're never coming back. It, it, it's kind of hard to explain, but I think it kind of led me to have all of these weird, like morbid questions of where did they go? Why does this happen? You know, like, how can I prevent it? You know, because I think a lot of that for as a little girl was, I just don't want this to happen again to me, you know? And I think that that probably led to a big portion of why I do what I do. Well, it seems that the the things that happened to you when you were younger are steering you in a direction that you're going to help people in the future in your field that you're you're studying. You can provide closure, yeah. or you can hopefully solve cases, or go find responsible people and you know put them help them for justice. And I think Definitely. that's great. Yeah, <laughs> which is funny because I'm in like a caregiver position. I've been a nanny for years. 
I, in one way or another, I've always kind of wanted to help people. So I guess it follows suit, you know, in a way I, I didn't really look at it that way is still kind of helping people. But yeah, I, I agree with that. It, it definitely very much is that way. I think, you know, I guess for me, you just realize that in that position, sometimes you're going to be able to solve it and sometimes you're not, you know, so maybe even like going into it with the idea of even solving one would be worth it, you know, because even one, one kid content being able to go home to their parents to me would be worth it, you know, so. Right. Take, yeah. take one scumbag off the street, whatever it might be by Absolutely. figuring it out. Right. And then you'll, but you'll learn from each one and then you'll take what you learned from the last one to be able to help develop and, you know, and then if not that genealogy guy in my neighborhood, he'll go stop the other ones. I was going to say, if not, he can just put me out <laughs> yeah. of work and I'm just, I don't, I don't need to do anything anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to, you know, that 23 and me, we're going to have a whole database of people's, you know, their DNA, their fingerprints, yeah. all these iPhone swipes and super interesting. Yeah. Just fascinating. Mm-hmm. So how much schooling do you have left? Oh, I literally, I am like freshly starting college. So any experience and knowledge I have in this field has just been self like over the years, just doing research reading. I read constantly. I'm a huge reader. And I would say that that's one of the reasons that I have the writing skills that I do. And the fact, one of the reasons I'm so detail oriented, I, my entire childhood, that's essentially all that I did. But still in the very beginning stages of college, it's going to be a while before I can do anything with it. But to apply for the FBI, I have to have a bachelor's degree. So I'm hoping once I get my bachelor's degree, I'll be able to apply for the FBI. So my dream is to work in the behavioral analysis unit. It's, if you've ever seen the show Mind Hunters on Netflix. That's um, the one that really has popular. Ted Kaczynski? Um, they do an episode on with him? Yeah, yes, yes. And they yeah, do the Charles Manson, yep. Ed Kemper. Yeah, so that is essentially my dream is that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I watched that Ted Kaczynski one the way I was supposed to. Because yeah. I watched the, I watched the however long it was, an hour, two hours, whatever it was. I watched 90% of it. And yeah. I'm on board. I'm like, this guy's terrible. That's terrible. And then they arrest him. And he's like dancing in the rain. And he just wants to like live in the woods. And they're taking him like into the supermax prison. And they're like, this is the last time you'll ever see freedom. And I was like, almost like a little tear. I was like, but oh, like I get that he did bad things. But I was like, but he just wants to be in nature. But uh, right. But he's yeah. but he's gonna be by himself at least. He's leaving everybody else alone, right? <laughs> yeah. I was like, just tell him he can't use the mail anymore. Like, can we make a deal right. with him? Like he's just exactly living out there but uh, yeah i guess he had to come <laughs> off the street so that was fine but uh, that's awesome i hope i hope the fbi you know i think that's gonna be really cool if you can get into that that'd be great open door policy anytime you want to come back and discuss any cases yeah i'm happy to i'm always happy to come back on i maybe in the future if you wanted to we could do like a, the cult topic that one i feel like that topic in general you could really talk about for so long it's just so heavily saturated with different inf- types of information it's a little more difficult talking specifically about like like talking about the West Memphis case, there's so much information that I could have covered that I feel like I literally touched the tip of the iceberg on that sometimes don't feel like I do necessarily very very thorough job. So maybe next time if you wanted to have me we could talk about something a little like broader versus really specific details. Yeah. And maybe a little lighter. Like I knew it was going to happen, but then as we started, I was like, oh no, no. Like, yeah. I don't want to hear any of this. I'm kind of browsing your, like the topics that you're talking about to people. Like this is very different for you. You're not used to this. Uh, I, you're my first true crime person. So that's good. I just, yeah. whatever I can pull into the, you know, this is the wild yeah. and the weird. So like, you know, we're, we're well, good for that. I wonder how your, your fans and your viewers will like it. Cause it definitely seems like 
the topic of true crime seems to kind of go hand in hand with people that are interested in like paranormal and the occult and stuff like that too. So I, hopefully it works out for you. It's a nice, it's a really good like niche to get into because so many, and more and more people seem to be getting fascinated by true crime recently. It seems like, so that's, that's good. And that's what I was going to recommend for you is, you know, all your free time that you have now between like married children and, and going to school. Right, exactly. But, <laughs> nothing, nothing yeah. but free time right now. <laughs> but you have all these details. Your blog posts are amazing. You need to have your own podcast. You need to deep dive into these. And you have to like interview people. You can just go into a spare room, a closet, whatever, and just go through all your stuff. And people love this stuff. Like, yeah, just, as I you agree. see on TV, they're all there. Or a sub stack or something of, of your writings. Like, that they're just... There's value there. So I hope you find the value in it. I pass my notes off on to you and then you can just utilize it for your blog. (laughs) (laughs) Podcasts are just a lot of work. And I guess one that it's just, I already have so little time that it's like, how can I possibly find time to do that? You know, but yeah, no, I I appreciate the compliments. It means a lot. You do great work. All right, Taylor, thank you so much for your time. Where can people find you? I am on Facebook at Truth Crime and Coffee. And right now I really only run my Facebook. I'm not posting a ton. So it, there's tons of articles that I posted previous for people to read if they wanted to. Right now I'm not posting super currently. So maybe if they wanted to check in back in, we could do another podcast eventually. But Truth Crime and Coffee on Facebook is pretty much the only place that I really post regularly. So yeah, but tons yeah. of content on there. People can go back. We yeah. look over all the stuff, all hundreds, great stuff. Hundreds, hundreds. of articles yeah. on there. Interact yeah. within the community. You know, that, yeah. that'd be good too. And then we'll, yes. we'll get you back. We'll, we'll have so much support. We're going to pull you back in. <laughs> that, that sounds good. Well, it was nice to meet you. Yeah. And thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for coming on and, and we'll stay in touch. And I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You have a great night. Thank you. You too. Bye. Okay. All right. Bye. All right, everyone. That was our show. Don't forget to leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcast. Like and follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram to stay up to date in all things wild and weird. Check out the links in the show notes for more information on our guests. The biggest support you can offer is to tell everyone about the podcast. Until next time.